Uh, last week, I mentioned that the, uh, um, the stained glass goes up, and I actually ended up getting a few phone calls saying, I didn't know that. Uh, and so this morning, uh, let's say it again together. Christ is risen. Christ is risen. Christ is risen. And as uh, we have been doing during this Easter season, uh, we are going through uh, a series called Jesus Is, uh, and I've asked various persons in the congregation uh, to submit videos, and we have a very special montage this morning. Let's play it. Hi. What's your name? My name is Yeah. Who is Jesus? Yes, Jesus is God's son. Jesus is a shepherd and he takes care of all of us. Jesus is the Messiah, the person who we follow. Jesus is a friend of us. Jesus is gracious. He gives and never stops. Jesus is our God, the Lord, and the true king. Jesus is prophet, king, and priest. Um, Jesus is mighty, powerful, our Savior, and our God. Jesus is grace. Grace is the unmerited favor of God, which works in a believer's life through faith, renewing the heart and restraining sin. Jesus is the Son of the Lord. Jesus is the Christ of the Lord. Jesus died for our sins. Jesus is the Holy Spirit. God the Son, God the God the Son, God the God the Son, God the Father, God the Holy Spirit. Um, instead, Jesus is Savior. For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish and have eternal life. So I don't get to preview these ahead of time, but uh, yeah, uh, that was, uh, we've got some budding theologians out there. Uh, this is wonderful. I, I think uh, our, our children's team is doing a wonderful job with our children, uh, as are our parents. Let's begin with a word of prayer. <clears throat> Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we come this morning and we ask for your presence in this place. We know that you are indeed here. We know that you live amongst us and within us. And this morning we ask that you continue to reveal yourself to us. That through your word that you reveal yourself to us. And through my preaching, Lord, that somehow I might get myself out of the way and you might speak directly to the hearts of these people who are listening. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, to begin this morning, I want to start with Matthew chapter 21. And this was our uh, New Testament passage for the day. And it's a bit of a riddle if you've ever come across this uh, passage uh, in Matthew's Gospel. If you're reading along, uh, it's, it, it might even be a little bit confusing. Um, and Jesus here uh, is talking to the Pharisees. He's in Jerusalem at this point. It's kind of near the end of his ministry. Uh, and uh, this uh, is uh, what we read in Matthew 21, starting in verse 41 to 46, we find, 
that now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, what do you think about the Christ? Okay, and this was, by the way, our topic for last week, right, that Jesus is the Christ. And so here Jesus is asking the question, what do you think about the Christ? And then he asks the question that I really want to kind of hone in on today. Whose son is he? Whose son is he? And they said, well, he's the son of David. And, and just to kind of pause a second, the Christ is the son of David. And if you were paying attention last week, the Christ means the anointed one, the one who is indeed connected to the anointed David, right? And this, there's this Davidic promise that says uh, that David's throne will last forever. And so indeed, the Christ should be the son of David. This seems simple enough, but Jesus... Well, he says to them, how is it then that David, in the Spirit, calls him Lord? How is it that, in the Spirit, David calls him Lord? And before we keep going, the the problem gets set up because uh, Jesus is about to quote from Psalm 110. And in uh, Psalm 110, what we have is... uh, well, we have a messianic psalm. Most Jews in in the first century, if they would read Psalm 110, they would read it as a promised Messiah. And Psalm 110 is written by David. It says, a psalm of David. And so, as we read here, this is what Psalm 110 says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. And it's the opening line of Psalm 110, and this is what Jesus quotes. And where it gets confusing, and and why you might be forgiven if you don't understand the riddle behind all of this, is because, uh, I've, I've got it for us up here, but the first Lord, the Lord says, this is, uh, Lord God, right? If you were to look at it in Psalm 110, it would be all, uh, of those capital letters, Lord. And so, it's Yahweh who says, to my Lord. And the my here is David, because David's doing the speaking, right? So, God says to David's Lord, and presumably then the Lord, the second Lord, is the Messiah. Are we we all together? I know it's it's a little confusing, but if you were a first century Jew, you would read this and you would say, God says to David's Messiah, or Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And so Jesus asks a quite natural question, which is, well, if the Messiah is David's son, how can the Messiah also be David's Lord? And and here, you just get into, again, a first century mindset. You can't have a son who is your Lord, not in that culture anyway. You, you wouldn't refer to your own child or to your, to your grandchild or to your great-grandchild as your Lord. And so Jesus is asking the question, well, whose son is he? And then the response comes, well, crickets, right? And so David, or, uh, uh, Jesus says, if then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one answers a word And in fact, they were so stunned by this, I guess, they just didn't ask any more questions at all, right? 
And what Jesus is doing, I want to say, in this passage is he's saying that, yes, the Messiah is David's son, but so much more. Because if you were living in the first century, if you were a Jew in the first century, and you were expecting Messiah, you might simply be expecting a human king, much like King David was a human king. And Jesus is coming along, and he's saying, no, we need to raise the bar of what we're expecting from our Messiah. And so, if there was a Venn diagram in front of you, uh, the box might, one, one circle might have uh, Messiah in it, or Christ, or the Anointed One, or the Son of David. It can all be the same thing. And then the, the circle that would be around it would be the Son of God. Because most people in the first century believed that Son of God, well, this is how you refer to the Messiah. And Jesus, what he's doing here is he's expanding this category, and he's saying that, no, the Son of God is more than the Messiah. It's bigger than, you've, you've lowered the bar too much, we need to raise the expectations of what it means to be the Son of God. All right, let's start with what does it mean to be a son of God, or the son of God, or sons of God in the Old Testament? We're going to start with, well, there's three things that I want to tell you. This is what we find uh, in our Old Testament. The first thing is an odd one. We're going to get out of the way real quick, uh, and we're going to move on. I know you're going to want me to pause here, uh, but it comes to us from Genesis chapter 6, 1 through 4. We actually also find it in Job 1. We also find it in Daniel 3, and sometimes these quasi-angelic beings get referred to as sons of God. And so, for example, here, when man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God, and there's the phrase, saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose." And then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be a hundred and twenty years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them, these were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. And again, fascinating stuff. What is happening here? And I just simply don't have time to go into it. It really, I don't think it connects in any way to the way in which Jesus is using the phrase son of God or sons of God in our New Testament. But I have to throw it out there in case you come across this because it is sitting there in your Old Testament. The second way, though, actually does connect to how Jesus uses this phrase how the New Testament writers use this phrase, and namely, they talk about Israel as the Son of God. And so, for example, I've got two here, but I give, could have given you uh, any number more. In Exodus chapter 4, God is coming to redeem the people of Israel, and he says to Moses, then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. All right, there it is. Israel is my firstborn son, is what God says. And I say to you, let my son go, that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. And indeed, this seems to be what happens, right? Or in Hosea, 
11.1, when Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. You might recognize this as something that gets picked up by, by Matthew, and he, he talks about Jesus this way, as, uh, as uh, I called my son out of Egypt. When they return from Egypt and, and they go uh, up uh, and they live in Nazareth, right, after Jesus is born and they flee the persecution of Herod. And I will say, just to get ahead of myself just a little bit, there is a sense in which I think Jesus himself, and certainly the New Testament authors, ascribe to Jesus the role of Israel as a whole. And Jesus plays out Israel's story, only he does so without error. And I think this is part of what's happening here. The third and final way we see Son of God used in the Old Testament is perhaps the most important one, and that is with respect to the king. Most often, David, but really any king of Israel, can be called the Son of God. And here again, we get our passage for today. Our Old Testament passage for today comes to us from 2 Samuel 7. This has to be one of the most important passages in all of the Old Testament. It's up there. So when I used to teach Old Testament, uh, I had uh, my students, I required them to remember uh, just a handful of specific uh, verses or, or uh, chapters in the Bible, and this was one of them, because it, uh, it hones in on one of these promises that God makes, and he wants to keep, and he keeps it in the person of Jesus. But here, God is making a promise to David, and what does he say? He says, when your days are fulfilled, and when you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. And he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And here's the phrase, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Right? David is the son, and God is the father. Solomon is the son, and God is the father, and, go, and so on and so forth with the kings of Israel. Or we see it again in Psalm uh, chapter 2. Again, one of these messianic psalms, but in, in verse 7, we see, I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, and he's speaking to David here, you are my son, today I have begotten you. You are my son. And so we have this sense in which David, the king, is the son of God. Lastly, Psalm 89, verses 24 to 29, which is all about David here. And it says, My faithfulness and my steadfast love shall be with him, and in my name shall his horn be exalted. I will set his hand on the sea and his right hand on the rivers, he shall cry to me, you are my father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. And I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. My steadfast love I will keep for him forever, and my covenant will stand firm for him. I will establish his offspring forever and his throne as the days of the heavens. Right. And so what do we get? We get in the Old Testament this phrase, 
son of God or sons of God as references to at least three things, right? The angelic beings, but Israel as a whole. And David, or, or the, the kings of Israel especially. And so when we get to the New Testament, when we get to these messianic expectations, and when we get to the phrase, the Son of God, repeated throughout our New Testament, well, how should it be heard? How should it be understood? I would argue that what Jesus is doing is he's taking a nucleus of what Son of God means. He's taking it as Israel and, and as the Davidic kingship, and then he's layering on top of it some other meanings as well. And so to start with, the first thing I would say is that when we come across the phrase, the Son of God, in the New Testament, we should read that it is the Messiah, it is the Christ, it is the Anointed One, it's the King, everything we talked about last week, right? And so when the angel comes to Mary in Luke chapter 1, what does the angel say? The angel says this in verse 30 to 33, the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called, and here it is, the son of the most high. This will be his name. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And you shouldn't miss it, right? That, that this is clearly connecting with 2 Samuel 7 and the promises God makes in 2 Samuel 7. And so when the, the angel comes to Mary and uses this phrase, Son of God or Son of the Most High, it is most definitely a messianic reference. Or in John chapter 1, verse 49, the first time Nathanael sees Jesus, Nathanael cries out and says, Rabbi, you are the Son of God, you are the King of Israel, as if these two things are the same, right? So this is one layer. And then on top of this, we layer the fact that Son of God is indeed a reference to Israel, and as I've already said, Jesus represents the Israel of God, and he, he replays the Israel story. He is the son of the promise that we find in Genesis. He, just like Israel as a nation, goes through the waters of the Jordan in his baptism. He, just like Israel, goes out into the desert and is tempted, only who survives the temptation. He fulfills all the major roles that Israel's supposed to play, prophet, priest, and king. He does all of this, but he does it all without sin. And so he replays the Israel story, and he does so, and he pulls it all together in, the per in one single person. And I have a, a nice quote here, it's, it's lengthy, so settle in, but it's from a scholar named Tremper Longman, and this is what he says about Jesus representing Israel. He says, Jesus had become a remnant of one. If you recall, there's this, uh, this idea in the Old Testament that there will be a remnant, and it turns out the remnant is just one. It's Jesus. He was the embodiment of faithful Israel, the truly righteous and suffering servant. Unlike the remnant of the restoration period, he committed no sin. 
As the embodiment of the faithful remnant, he would undergo divine judgment for, the, for sin on the cross, endure an exile of three days forsaken by God in the grave, and experience a restoration or resurrection to life as the foundation of a new Israel, inheriting the promises of God afresh. As the remnant restored to life, he becomes the focus of the hopes for the continued existence of the people of God in a new kingdom, a new Israel of Jew and Gentile alike. A sinful nation, Israel, could not suffer vicariously to atone for the sins of the world. The sinfulness of the nation made it unacceptable for this role, just as flaws would disqualify any other offering. Only a truly righteous servant could bear this awful load. And this is what we have in the person Jesus. Jesus is Messiah. Jesus is Israel. But there's more. Jesus, it turns out, as the Son of God, Luke connects this with, of all people, Adam. This is one of these interesting spots in the genealogies that we often just kind of jump over, right? But in Luke 3, if you were to read the whole genealogy, it starts like this. It, it, it says, Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, uh, being the son uh, of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Methot, and it goes on, sons of, sons of, right? And it goes all the way down the line, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, and the son of Adam is the last one, except for one more. It says, the son of God. And here Luke connects for us this idea that Adam is indeed the son of God, which sets up this really interesting parallel between Jesus as the son of God on the one hand and Adam as the son of God on another hand. And in the same way that Israel fails to act as Israel should, well, so Adam also failed to act as Adam should, right? And we need a new Israel, and we need a new Adam. And this is what we get. So in 1 Corinthians 15, 22, Paul tells us that is, in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. And Romans 5 says much the same thing, actually a little more complex. And here in Romans 5, Paul uh, says that Adam is a type of one to come, which is, of course, Jesus. Adam is the type, and Jesus, well, Jesus becomes the anti-type. And through the first, Adam, we find life, but it gets mixed with death. And through the second, we find life and only life abundant. And so when we talk about Jesus as the Son of God, we talk about Jesus as that Messiah. We talk about Jesus as Israel. We talk about Jesus as the second Adam. Just a quick pause. When Jesus talks about his own sonship, there's a certain intimacy that he, uh, that he seems to have with the Father. He teaches us to pray as well, our Father who art in heaven, correct? Right? 
And I'll get to the point at, at which we too are children of God and how that fits in with all of this, because it does. It's actually really, really important. But Jesus has this extra intimacy that he draws us into when he calls God Abba, right? He cries out to God in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he says, Abba, Father, take this cup from me. I don't want to go to the cross. Abba, Daddy, is what it translates to. And there's this intimacy in this moment that we find between Jesus and God that is unlike anything the, the world had ever seen before. Which then gets us to our fourth and our final way in which the Son of God should be understood. And it's the way you probably understand the Son of God already. And that is, Jesus is God, right? But to get to that point, if you're a first century Jew, actually takes a few steps, the steps that I've taken you down. A first century Jew would not necessarily have expected the Messiah or even the Son of God to be God himself. And yet this is what we get. And so I want us all to turn together to the book of John. John's gospel begins this way, and it gives us the most clear vision of who Jesus is and what it means for Jesus to be the Son of God. Very opening lines of John. Go ahead and turn there. I'll give you a second. I'll turn there too. All right. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And there we have it, right? And if you've been around the church for long enough, you know, okay, we're talking about Jesus. Jesus is the Word, and here Jesus is clearly stated to be God. We're on, we're on safe and easy footing at this point. And all things are made through him, through the word, through Jesus. And without him was not anything made that was made. And in him is life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Can I just say, this is one of the most beautiful openings to any book that I could even possibly imagine. I could easily see this be, being like put to a movie and, and a narrator starting off the life of Jesus, uh, and, and you get this wonderful opening. Uh, it certainly, I mean, I love Matthew, and I love Mark, and I love Luke, but n none of them have an opening to a gospel that rivals anything like what John gives us here. I'm going to skip down to verse 9, and he says this, the true light which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world, well, they didn't know him. And he came to his own, and his own people didn't receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become, and here we have it, children of God. Those who believe in his name, the name of Jesus, well, they 
are given the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but they're born of God. And then this is what drew me to this passage, verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And here it is. Jesus is the only Son from the Father. And you might be confused at this point. We've just been called children of God, and now John is turning around and telling us, well, there's this only Son as well. And this is really important stuff. And there's a lot of theology that stands behind what I'm about to say. And there's a Greek word, monogenes, that gets translated here as only son, sometimes only begotten son. But here's what you need to know about this word. There's two things. That Jesus is the unique son of God. The unique son. There's no son that, you and I, we might be called sons and daughters of God, but we don't rival uh, Jesus in any way uh, uh, as, uh, as the Son of God. And the second thing I would say is this, is that unlike us, Jesus shares a nature with the Father, right? Jesus shares the nature of the Father. This is different from us. We are indeed children of God, and we are created in God's image, but we are made, we are created. Jesus is eternally existent with the Father. All right, so why does any of this matter? Here's why. I've kind of been uh, leading up to this moment for four weeks straight now. We've talked about Jesus as the risen one, Jesus as Lord. We've talked about Jesus as the Christ and Jesus as the Son of God. If we're talking about anything, we are talking about identity, the identity of Jesus. Who is this man? But we're not just talking about one thing. We're talking about our identity too. Because Jesus calls us into a new identity, a new way of being human. And it matches up with the identity of Jesus on every line. And it goes like this. Jesus is the risen one, and so are we. 1 Corinthians 15 says that Christ is the first fruits of the resurrection and that we are expected to follow after. And this indeed is our great hope. 1 Corinthians 15, 20 to 23 says, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ, the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Christ is the risen one. You and I are invited into that resurrection through the person of Jesus Christ. 
Number two, Jesus is Lord. This is what we talked about a few weeks ago. And so are we. Not in ways you might think. We, we are, however, co-regents with God. 2 Timothy says it this way in chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. The saying is trustworthy. For if we have died with him, we also live with him. And if we endure, we also reign with him. And this really brings us back to the garden narrative, the opening chapters of the Bible that are so important for our self-understanding of what it means or should mean to be fully human. And to be fully human means that God has given us dominion over this earth and that we are supposed to act like it, but not in ways that often get understood as dominion. The power of this world and the way it gets abused is not the way of God. And so unfortunately, we, humanity, have perverted the ruling and the reigning ever since the garden and ever since we exited that garden. We were put in charge of the place and we were meant to rule it, but we have perverted what it means to rule and to reign. Nevertheless, Jesus shows us the way. The one who is the ruler of all became servant of all, and so it is with us. If this isn't the kind of ruling you are interested in, then you probably haven't been shaped into the new kind of humanity that Jesus inaugurates, and you've got some work to do. Now, don't misunderstand Jesus is the Lord of all. He's the unique Lord of all. And we shouldn't forget that part. Abraham Kuyper says it this way, There is no single piece of our mental world that is hermetically sealed off from the rest, and there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, Mine. It's all his. But as we are found in Christ, we are co-regents with Christ, as Adam and Eve were co-regents with God in the garden. The third week we talked about, last week, Jesus is the Christ. And you might say to yourself, well, surely we're not Christ's, right? But actually we do find in our New Testament that we too are anointed ones. This is what the word means, to be anointed. And this is what we find of our very selves, the self-description of what it means to be human is an anointed one. 1 John 2, 20 says, But you have been anointed by the Holy Spirit, and you all have knowledge. Or Hebrews 1, 9, You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness, therefore God your God has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Or, my favorite of all, 2 Corinthians 1, 21 and 22. 
It is God who establishes us with you in Christ, is what Paul says, and has anointed us. And then he goes on to describe it, and he says, and who has put his seal upon us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. And if you remember last week, when David is anointed, he is sealed and he is consecrated, and the spirit of God rushes upon him. And this is what it means to be part of the new humanity. Which leaves us the last one, today's topic, the Son of God. Now surely we're not divine, are we? No, we're not. Don't think we are. That was an easy question. I, I feel like I tricked you a little bit there. We're not. Jesus is uniquely the Son of God. But we are called children of God, are we not? Jesus is uniquely, by his very nature, God. But if you are found in Christ, then that one who Paul says is the unique, or sorry, is the image of the invisible God. He's talking about Jesus. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Well, he is the one who restores our very image as God-bearers. Just as Genesis 1 says, that we are created in the image of God. But of course, this image over time has become marred and warped and distorted, and it needs to be sanctified, and we need to be given a new vision of what it means to be in the image of God. And it is through Jesus that we are given this image. And even more, it is through Jesus that this image is actually restored. Jesus is the Son of God. But because of this, you too are a son or a daughter of God. Romans 8, 14 to 15 has one of the most inspiring lines in it in uh, perhaps all of Scripture. And in it, Paul says, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons and daughters of God. And you didn't receive a spirit of slavery, is what he says, to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Just like Jesus, crying out to God as Daddy, so you and I, through adoption, are able to cry this same phrase. If I can say so, Maya Angelou has, uh, has captured this well when she says it this way. Stand up straight, and realize who you are, that you tower over your circumstances, that you're a child of God. Stand up straight, and don't fall back into that fear. Whatever might be plaguing you this morning, you are a child of God. Thanks be to Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior and the Son of God. Let's pray together. Jesus, 
the name above all names, beautiful Savior, glorious Lord, Emmanuel, God with us, blessed Redeemer. You are our living God in our midst. We give thanks to you. We praise you. All the promises of the Old Testament come to a climax in you. And in you, all the promises are yes and they are amen. And you, the Son of God, have come to redeem this earth and to teach us what it means to be fully human and to give us a way to become fully human. And for that, we give you thanks and glory and praise. Amen.